0: Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C O A H Brighton.org. My name is Tyler. I'm on staff at um, Coa Brookline, which if you didn't know, uh, COA Brighton is part of the COA Network. I'm so grateful to be part of a church network where uh, our pastors and, and church staff can, can do other things like go on trips, and, and we still have people to come and fill in, and, and the gospel is still preached, and um, worship is still had. So grateful to be a part of that. Uh, really good to see you guys. Really good to see some old faces that I love, some new faces too, um, both myself and, and my wife Ashlyn and I have a super deep love for, for you guys and for COA Brighton and everything you're doing here. Um, we love Aaron and Emily a ton. Um, and we also uh, a lot of you are just near and dear to our hearts. Um, I actually co-led a CG with Melissa um, for about three years, and then that CG eventually uh, came over and 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 helped plant Co Brighton. Um, and so a lot of you guys uh, are just so near dear near and dear to us. and um, just honored that that I get to come here and and spend some time with you. Um, so, uh, In light of that, some personal news. You guys are so near and dear to my heart. Um, As Kyle said, uh, Ashlyn and I welcomed our first child into the world, Uh, yeah? December 22nd, I think we have some pictures. Uh, Her name's Adelina, and we call her Addie for short, Um, and and she's doing well. Addie's healthy and Ashlyn's healthy. Ashlyn did a great job. Uh, It kind of hasn't hit us yet that we're parents. Um, To be honest, it kind of feels like, with Addie being a newborn, like we're kind of more caretakers um, than parents. Um, I'm still a dad, but I'm really looking forward to, to being a dad, like giving fatherly advice and wearing the white New Balances and telling the worst jokes ever. I look forward to those parts of, of being a dad. Um, and to no surprise, uh, people tell you a lot of things when you're expecting a child, and they're all true. Children just eat, sleep, cry, and poop, and that's all she does. Um, but in all seriousness, we feel blessed just to, to have a happy, healthy baby and, and a healthy mom and that um, there weren't any issues. So um, like Kyle said, we're in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 25, and we're going all the way through 5.2. Um, and if you're new here or you haven't been around for a while, we're in a series on the book of Ephesians. And uh, we've been in this, in this book for really the past like six months. And um, we spent the first few months going through the first half of the book, chapters one, two, and three. And they, they really revolve around these great spiritual blessings that God gives us in Christ. And if you go back and reread it, one of my favorite themes that keeps popping up is just the activity of God in it all. Right? If you read it, you see that God is doing everything. We're doing little to almost nothing. Right? God is the one saving people. God is the one uniting people. God is the one blessing us in Christ. God is the one revealing the mystery of the gospel. I think Paul, and Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. I think he does this intentionally. He talks a lot about what God has done. And then it's not until uh, chapter four that he really starts to talk about what we should do and how we should live. And I think that's very intentional. It's almost as if Paul is saying, hey, first look at everything that God has done. Look at who God is. And now in light of that, let me tell you how you should live. And uh, just before our passage, uh, the verses last week, if you were here, you heard Aaron talk about them. Paul talks about this idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And so our passage today is Paul just expanding on that idea. It's it's Paul giving a a visual to what that actually looks like. It's it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a visual of what the new self looks like, what it means to take off the old self and put on the new self. And he kind of summarizes summarizes it up with with one statement. Verse 1 of chapter 5, when he says, therefore, be imitators of God. So in our time today, as, as we walk through this passage, it's my hope that as we talk about these things, you don't just hear, um, do this and don't do that. It's my hope that you don't just hear, do this this way or don't do that this way, but it's my hope that you see Paul is telling us to be imitators of God. Paul is telling you to imitate God. And two things to talk about in light of that. Two things to kind of help guide our time in this passage. Um, first is the basis of our imitation of God. The basis of our imitation of God. Why do we imitate God in the first place? Right. What is the foundation for imitating God? And secondly, what does it actually look like to imitate God? What are some examples of imitation? What does it mean to imitate God? What does that look like? What is Paul saying here? What is he saying to do and not do? So first, the basis for our imitation. So I think if you were to walk up to your average Joe, just walking on the street, and you asked him about the things that Paul says in these verses, specifically 25 through 32, I think nine times out of 10, they would agree with you. I think most people, even the most anti-Christian, anti-religious people would agree with the idea that you should tell the truth. You should be a truthful person. I think most people would agree with the idea uh, that um, we shouldn't steal, right? Most people would agree with the idea that holding on to bitterness is not a good thing for you to do. Hundreds, if not thousands of other religions teach these very same things. So it seems on the surface, there's almost no difference between the Christian and the atheist. It seems on the surface, there's almost no difference between Christianity and most other religions. And what's ironic is if you ask some Christians, not every Christian is gonna answer this way, but if you ask some Christians, what makes you a Christian? Some of them would stop They'd think and they'd ponder, be like, hmm, I think it's because I don't do these things. Or I'm a Christian because I do these things. Right? But the difference actually comes along when you ask the question, why? Right? Why do we do these things? And most will simply say, we do these things because they're good. They're morally good. Right? You want to be a good person? So you do these morally good things. We don't do these things because they're bad. They're morally bad. You don't want to be a bad person, right? So we don't do these bad things. But Paul in Ephesians and therefore Christianity at large says, don't do these things and don't not do these things simply because they're not good or simply because they are good, but do them because God says we are new. We have a new self and a new identity. And God says we are beloved children. Those two things, those are the basis of our imitation of God. The fact that we are new and the fact that we are beloved children. So let's talk about that a little bit. God says we are new. I know you guys talked about this last week, but I think it's really important to hit on them again um, because the rest of our time in Ephesians, really chapter four all the way to the end, again, is talking about how do you live your life as a Christian? How do you live your life personally? How do you live your life with others? How do you live your life in the context of relationships, whether that's marriage or children or what have you? And I have to imagine week in and week out, we're gonna need to be reminded that all these things, all these commands to do this and don't do that and to live like this and don't live like that, all flow from a place of being new. All flow from a place of being an entirely new person. And then that's one thing that actually makes Christianity unique is Christianity addresses the whole self. Right? Christianity doesn't just address your morality. It doesn't just address your um, intellect or your spirituality. It addresses your entire self. So when you become a Christian, it's not that you have some good areas in your life that remain untouched and then the bad areas of your life, you kind of do better or become better. No, what Christianity says is that you are a brand new person entirely, right? Entirely. Having a newborn, um, you know, my rhythms and habits and routines are all kinds of whack and find myself doing things I don't normally do. For some reason, I don't know why this is the case, but I'm watching the news way more often. I know I was just having more downtime, but I saw a news clip recently about a guy named Thomas Randall. Anyone see that news clip, Thomas Randall? No, okay. Thomas Randall is actually a man named Ted Conrad. And Ted Conrad in 1969, he robbed a bank in Cleveland um, with what is worth today about $2 million. And obviously he fled and he actually ended up right outside of Boston. Um, and not even a year after he robbed the bank, he walked right into his social security office got a new social security card with a new name, Thomas Randall. And so at that moment, he was new, he became new. But Thomas Randall, he had to, to work to change himself, right? He had to change his habits. He eventually actually became, his friends and, and his wife said he became a good person, right? He's actually a good person. He, he eventually even had kids. He worked an honest job and his friends thought extremely highly of him. He had to work to change himself, and actually, side note, super interesting, it was actually a deathbed confession. He was about to die and he confessed to his wife and his, his kids like, oh yeah, I'm actually Thomas Randall. And so in one sense, this does illustrate how you become new. It's a moment, right? The moment when Thomas Randall became, or sorry, Ted Conrad became Thomas Randall. But at the same time where the difference is, is Thomas Randall was the one doing all the work. He was in charge, he was calling the shots. He was in charge of his life and, and working hard to make himself new. I think many of us, we look at Christianity. We look at our faith that way. We look at our newness that way, right? We say, I need to get my act together. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing that. I need to go to church. But in a sense, when we do those things, what we're actually doing is just becoming religious. Becoming religious is something you do. Becoming new is something that's done for you. It's something that's given to you. It's something that God does. And it does come at a cost. It's not like God uh, gives this freely in that no one had to pay a cost for that. Right? Elsewhere in scripture, Paul says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God and your body. We are made new when we trust in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. Right? Jesus took on our old self on the cross, and he gives us his new self. In the passage prior to ours, it describes the new self as holy and truly righteous, and made in the likeness of God. That's Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, another letter written by Paul, he says it in a different way. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So again, when you become a Christian, it's not just upgrading yourself. It's not the 2.0 version, right? You're completely different than what you were before. You're new. And so this is part of the basis of our imitation of God. We are new Our old self, our old ways of living are left behind. The second part of the basis of orientation, look at verse one in chapter five, we are told to be imitators of God as beloved children. So the main command here is obviously be imitators of God. That's kind of the summary of what we're talking about today. That's the summary of our verses, but don't miss the second part. It it almost slips by unnoticed. And honestly, it, it took me a little while into studying this passage to really see that. As beloved children, this describes both how God sees us and how we are to imitate Him. So, you might imitate your boss at work because she's really good at what she does and she's made it to a certain point in her career and in your field that you want to be at as well, so you imitate her, right? You imitate a roommate or a good friend or a spouse, because you spend a lot of time with them. And so you start to pick up on their habits and and their character and certain tendencies and things they do. And those aren't bad reasons to imitate people. And those aren't bad reasons to imitate God. We ought to imitate God because God's good at being godly. There's no more godly than God, right? We ought to imitate God and his character because we've been spending so much time with him and in his word and in prayer that we see who he is in the scriptures and we begin to emulate that. Those are good things, but this text is also telling us that we should imitate him as beloved children. So question, why does a child imitate their parents? It's not because they're wise enough to see what their parents do as good and bad and therefore they imitate it as such. You know, when Addie, she grows up and she's eight or whatever impressionable age you want to pick, she's not going to look at my actions and say, my dad's really good at doing this. So I'm going to imitate these parts of him, but he's really bad at doing this. So I'm going to not imitate those parts. No, because children imitate the bad parts of their parents too. Children imitate you because they love you. Children imitate their parents because they have affection for their parents. And ultimately it's because they have a personal relationship with them. think about it, to imitate someone really well, you have to have a personal relationship with them. The same thing goes for us in imitating God. Our imitation of God is, is like a child who imitates their parent, right? I mean, God is our father and we are to imitate him like that out of love and affection for him. So, It's important that we lay this this foundation, those two things, this foundation for imitating God first, because um, we're gonna talk a lot about what Paul says to do and not do. But the thing is, you can do all those things and you can say all those things properly. And you can, on the outside, look like a fantastic Christian. But if you're missing that foundation, if you don't understand that your foundation is being made new, and if you don't understand that your foundation is being a beloved child, you've missed the mark. You're missing what Paul is truly saying here. My wife and I, we've been um, slowly entering the the housing market over the past year, which if you know anything about the housing market right now, it's a terrible time to be doing that. But here we are. Um, And we actually went and saw a condo last week, and I found it interesting that both me and my wife, we we focused a lot on the aesthetics. How does the place look? How are the countertops, the appliances, the the floors? Do they look nice? What kind of paint is it? is how's the the space laid out? And our our realtor who was with us, he he did all the same things too, right? He he looked at those things and and, um, had some good insights. But it was super interesting to me that after we saw the apartment, we actually went down to the basement and we spent more time there than the actual apartment. Our realtor, he took us down and he was looking at the foundation, right? He was looking at uh, the water damage possibly in the ceiling or in the walls. He was looking for cracks in the walls. He was looking at the structure, because no matter how nice the apartment itself looked, if its foundation had cracks or it had issues, there are gonna be problems for us down the line. One of two things were gonna happen. One, the house is not worth as much as they say it is. Or two, there's gonna be huge costs for us later on. Our worst case scenario, I'm sure you've heard about houses or buildings that have a terrible foundation and disaster strikes and the whole thing crumbles. So as we start to talk about 25 through 32, just keep these things in mind. Right, that these actions, what we do and don't do, that they're not the foundation for your faith, right? They flow from your faith. These things you do and don't do, they don't earn your love from God, right? God never says, scripture never says that you obey and therefore I love you. It always says, I love you, therefore obey. But at the same time, we do have to acknowledge that there are standards to reach for in Christianity. Christianity does have a moral system. Christianity does have lists of things that Christians should do and Christians shouldn't do. Christianity does have an ethic. Christianity does have a worldview that we're told we are to live by. And some people try to explain this away by saying, oh, that's legalism. That's legalistic, right? You're focusing on law. You're focusing on what we should do and not do. You're not focusing on God's love. But it's only legalistic if those standards, those do's and don'ts come before God's love for you. But what scripture teaches is that God's love for you comes before these things. In fact, these things are, are caused by God's love. So knowing this, how should we imitate God? What does that look like? And Paul gives us great insight into this, verses 25 to 32, And that's kind of where we're gonna camp out and spend the rest of our time. Um, And again, it's not an exhaustive list, right? These aren't the only ways to imitate God. Um, And to be honest, we're we're gonna highlight a few and we're gonna kind of skim over some other ones, kind of like a mile wide inch deep kind of thing for some of them. Um, And I think when we read parts of the Bible like this that are in our section today, inevitably they act like a mirror in our lives, right? When Kyle said, be angry and do not sin, I bet most of us held it up like a mirror. How do I measure up to that, right? Am I doing that? And immediately, maybe some of you thought, you're right. I just, I got to get control of my anger issues. I got to stop gossiping. I just need to do better. But the thing is, it's deeper than that, right? It's deeper than assessing how you act. It's deeper than assessing how you behave. It's actually mirroring to into what you believe. Aaron kind of touched on this last week, this idea that beliefs drive behavior. You don't do certain things because you don't believe certain things. You do certain things because you believe other things. So for example, when scripture tells you to do something like pray, don't just think to yourself, I need to pray more. or I need to get in the habit of waking up at 4 a.m. and praying. But rather ask yourself, what am I not believing about the power and necessity for prayer? Or a scripture like this one, where it says, don't talk in a corrupting manner. Don't just think, I should stop talking bad about this person and I should stop talking bad about this thing. But ask yourself, what am I not believing about the power of the tongue? What am I not believing about the power of my words? Belief or disbelief is what drives actions. So let's talk about some of these things. Verse 25, um, Paul says to put away falsehood and speak the truth to each other. The word falsehood there seems to imply that Paul is talking about something a little more broad than just like a direct lie, right? I think something like bending the truth would fall under this. I think something like slight exaggerations and stories would fall under this. And there's a difference between doing those things in jest and then doing those things to make yourself look a certain way, right? And I'm totally guilty of that. Like I really am. Like if three people come up to me and ask me the same question and I have to tell a story or tell an answer, like my, my answer is gonna get more exaggerated each time. right? someone comes up to me, the first person says, hey, how's Addie doing? Oh, she's great. She only cries about 10 minutes at a time. Second person, oh, she's great. She only cries like 20 minutes at a time, really. Third person, oh, this child's crazy. She cries like three hours a day straight. That's, that's, that's what Paul is saying to put off and not do here. Withholding the truth would also fall under this too. So when you're sharing how you're doing at community group and you say you're fine, but you're not, Paul says, put that off. And Paul says, put on the truth, speak truthfully. Why? Because we are members one of another. Because we belong to each other. We belong to each other. This, 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 you all aren't just people that go to the same church on a Sunday morning, you're a family. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul talks about how God has united a people under Christ. He didn't unite people just to come to one place on a Sunday, hear some singing and a sermon and leave. No, he united you as a people to do life together. Notice that that, that almost every command that Paul gives in this section, he also gives a reason. In this whole section, it kind of roughly follows this framework of, don't do this, do this instead, because this. And it kind of echoes the section before where Paul's saying, put off the old self, put on the new self, right? And the thing that's super interesting is looking at each of the reasons that Paul gives, it always involves other people, always involves other people. What does that mean? That means your imitation of God, it's not just for you. It's not just about you. John Stott, who was a great pastor, says, holiness, imitating God, is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. I bet that we tend to read passages like this and think the only implications are for ourselves. But scripture rejects that idea entirely. And I actually think this is one area where the American church has completely missed the mark. Right, our natural disposition, my natural disposition is that my faith is about me but really the opposite is true. Your life before you were saved, that was about you. That's when the universe revolved around you. But now that you've been called into God's family, your life is about God and your life is about other people. Like, like it's, it's amazing We Go reread Ephesians 1 and, and literally count the number of times Paul uses the word we and Paul uses the word us when talking about these amazing blessings that God gives his people and how little he uses the word you. And I would be willing to bet with like 95% confidence that even when he does use the word you, it's in the plural, you all. Continue on, verse 26 says, do not sin in your anger. Notice it doesn't say don't be angry, but it says don't sin in your anger. I think um, there's definitely such a thing as healthy anger. There's definitely such a thing as good anger. Jesus expressed good, healthy anger. Because I think being angry means you cares about you care about things. Being angry means you care about people. David Paulson, who's a, a biblical counselor in his book, Good and Angry, defined anger like this: active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. In other words, anger, when you're angry is in a way you saying that matters to me, that matters to me. And we all experience this in different ways. Some of us like a firecracker, right? Some of us, we kind of simmer like a pot of water and then boil over. Some of us, we get just really quiet and it turns into a silent treatment kind of thing. Some of us, there's a rare breed that get mad at objects. I'm one of those people. Literally, I'll stump my toe on a chair and I'll turn around and say, that's the most disgusting, ugly chair I've ever seen. Your color is terrible. Look at the way you're designed. You're so stupid. That's, that's me. We all express anger in different ways. So the natural question then is what does it mean to be angry in such a way that you're sinning? And to be honest, it's, it's kind of impossible to draw like an objective line, but I'll say this. When you attempt to satisfy your anger, At the expense of others. So in other words, when you attempt to satisfy your anger, not for their own good, but for your own satisfaction, I would argue that's sinning and anger. I would say if it in your anger and your thoughts of anger, if you start having untrue thoughts about someone like, oh, this person is the worst and they're trying to defame me and do all these things that clearly aren't true. I would say that's sinning and anger. On the flip side, if you have true thoughts about someone, With malicious intent, that's also sinning and anger. Frederick Buechner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Satisfying anger is like a feast. Maybe you can resist for a little bit. Maybe you dabble in some appetizers, but eventually... Eventually, if you don't deal with it properly, you're gonna dive in. And I wanna spend a lot of time talking about how to deal with anger, but we don't have time for that. So let me mention just just two things. This first one, when I say it, you're gonna be like, come on, are you serious? First one is prayer. (laughs) Prayer. Pray for the people that you're angry about. I can tell you from experience in my life, when I'm diligent in prayer for the people that I'm angry about, when I'm praying for them to know the love of Jesus more deeply, to reflect God in their life more clearly, and for me to be of any assistance I can in that, it's a lot harder to get angry at someone when you're praying that way. The second thing, and we touched on this earlier with the whole Beliefs inform behavior idea. But ask yourself, what are you believing that's causing this anger? So a coworker makes a passive-aggressive comment about you. Ask yourself, what do you believe about what they said that made you so angry? What do you believe about your worth and your value that makes you so angry? What do you believe about that that it was a possible strike against your dignity that made you so angry? That, That doesn't mean... There's not need for a conversation like, hey, that really hurt me. But what Paul is telling us here is to put that off. Ultimately, because God has given you a new self. And because in Christ, God provides everything you think you were stripped of in that moment. Paul also says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says, reconcile. That means reconcile your anger. Whether it's, you know, you have to go spend some time in prayer and in the word and, and figure it out in your own heart. Or whether it's you need to go to your brother and sister in Christ and, and, and figure it out and, and reconcile. He says reconcile. Jesus puts reconciliation at moments above the worship of God. He says before you go and worship God, go reconcile with your brother or sister. Now does this mean if a husband and wife get in a fight at 11.59 p.m., that they need to reconcile before the day's over. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, don't let your anger fester. Don't let your anger fester and endure. Why? Because festered anger is an opportunity for the devil. He says in the very next verse, festered anger is an opportunity for the devil. So maybe this is just me personally, but I don't actually tend to think of my own like individual actions as the very thing that give an opportunity to the devil. I don't think of my own actions as the very thing that open me up to spiritual attacks. Usually it's the opposite, right? Usually it's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm upset, I got angry. You know, I think it's because I'm under spiritual attack. Right? And sometimes that happens. That certainly happens sometimes. But what this is saying is that the opposite is true. It's your anger that brings you those things on you, right? It's your own actions and your own sins that, that opens up that door. It's like Frodo in the ring and Lord of the Rings, right? There's this, this one ring to, to rule them all and Sauron, the big bad guy, he wants the ring back and Frodo has it. Anytime Frodo puts the ring on, in an instant, Sauron knows where he is and he sends people to go get him. I have to imagine that's a little bit what it looks like to fester in anger. We are immediately open to spiritual attacks. When we let anger fester, I'd safely bet the devil was close by. Spiritual attacks are close by. Verse 28 says, do not steal, but do honest work so you can give to people who are in need. So Paul doesn't say, doesn't just say stop stealing, although that's true, whether it's a full-blown shoplifting addiction type of thing, whether it's stealing hours from your work, whether it's not managing your priorities properly and stealing time from your family. But he also says do honest work so you can give to those in need. Question, have you ever thought about the purpose of your work, the purpose of your income to be for other people in its entirety? All right, my first thought when I get my paycheck is not how can I use this for other people? That's usually the last thought with whatever's left over, right? Now I'm not saying that Paul is saying you need to give 100% away here because I, you have to provide for your family. That's a form of giving. But here's the thing, it's, it's really simple. Jesus, he was a generous person. He was generous and quick to meet any need in the perfect way. And generosity wasn't just something Jesus did. It was an attitude that he kind of put on. It was a disposition. It wasn't an action. It was a way of living, right? Think about the most generous person you know. I just said Jesus, but someone other than Jesus. Think about the most generous person you know, right? Most of us, we don't tend to look at them and say, the things that they do, oh, they're so generous. We actually say they're a generous person, right? It's almost like it's embedded. It's part of them. They're a generous person. Paul is telling us, be generous people. Work so you can be generous. Do honest work so you can be generous. Grouping the last few verses kind of together here. In summary, Paul's telling us in these last few verses to put off talk and actions that are harmful and not helpful to others. In a way that summarizes the whole thing. But these last verses in particular, Paul tells us to put off talk and actions that are harmful and not helpful to others. He says, don't talk corruptly. Another word to translate that is rotten. Don't let rotten talk come out of your mouths. Why? Because your words are powerful. And the tongue is extremely dangerous if it's not tamed. Look what James 3 says about the power of the tongue. And honestly, it's, it's not a pretty picture. It's almost hard to believe. James 3 says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What? A restless evil? Full of deadly poison? With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come the same From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. I think we are vastly unaware of how powerful our words are. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. Right? I think all of us here, without a doubt, we can very easily remember tons of instances where people said things and it hurt. You can probably remember direct quotes, moments, things that were said to you and they hurt. Very likely by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Same time, we've also said painful things to people, hurtful things, rotten things to people. Some of us in this room have said rotten things to other people in this room. And the thing is, sometimes these words are obvious. Sometimes these circumstances and things, they're obvious, but sometimes they're really, really subtle. Right, a small comment here or there that you hope sways someone, someone's opinion about that other person the wrong way a small comment about being displeased in a certain way that you hope changes people's mind, right? That's corrupt talk. That doesn't mean you don't talk about difficult circumstances. That doesn't mean you don't talk about difficult people even, I would argue, but it means you check yourself and you check your posture and you check your heart when you're going into those conversations. It means before you go into those things, you ask yourself, do you still in these moments deeply desire what's best for the other person? do you still in these moments deeply desire intimacy and friendship with this person? Do you still deeply desire them to be close to the Lord and to know Jesus? Are you seeking genuinely seeking godly counsel and godly advice? Or are you really just trying to bring someone down? Or are you really just trying to justify yourself at the expense of someone else? Or are you really just trying to paint a bad picture of someone? Paul says, "Don't let rotten words come out of your mouth, but rather only speak things that build people up and in that impart grace to others." So another way to look at this is to ask the question, Are my words bringing grace to this situation? Are my words bringing grace to this person? It doesn't mean you don't speak a hard word to someone. Tough love is a real thing. Tough love is oftentimes an act of grace. He goes on and he says, take off all bitterness and wrath and anger. And it's sort of implied there that the anger mentioned here is not the same anger mentioned earlier. It's implied here that this anger is kind of like an outburst of anger. He says, don't let anger control you. He says, take all these things off and put on kindness, tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Paul says the thing that harm your brothers and sisters in Christ, not even just your brothers and sisters in Christ, other people in general, with no good intention and serve no good cause, take those things off. Rid yourself of them and be imitators of God. So as we close, the worship team eventually comes back up. I want to challenge us. Paul, um, you know, I think he, he's done a lot of good things. He's, he's, he's a missionary. He planted churches. He, um, his faith endured in the midst of persecution. And I think we can kind of look at all the things he's done It almost kind of overshadows his character, who he is. Right elsewhere in scripture, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I challenge you, genuinely ask yourself the question what in your life is worth imitating? Get specific. Write it down. What areas are worth imitating? What areas aren't worth imitating? If you aren't sure, ask a friend, ask a spouse. Right? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's the kind of talk that doesn't build others up. And here's the thing. Don't mistakenly think that the answer to this is just you doing better. Right? You just need to try harder. You just kind of need to white-knuckle your way to the finish line. Right? Dig deep and figure out where you are believing or not believing the proper things. And realize, maybe even more than that, realize That it's not just changing certain beliefs, but it's you relying on God. Aaron talked a lot about how people change last week, right? It's the spirit at work in you.